Hi everyone, it's Ben. You, our listeners, have been a great support to us. We really do appreciate the contact that we get on Facebook and also on Twitter. Like, some of the questions we've got coming in for Heroes of the Hydean Way are great. And we always appreciate being mentioned in posts that we can see on Reddit, G+, and the more reviews we get on Stitcher and iTunes, the higher we are in the rankings for the likelihood we're going to show up. And finally, if you're able to and want to, you can be like our latest patron, Chad Owen, at patreon.com slash the Hydean Way. Thank you, and now on to the show. Throwing the hyperspace levers forward and expecting the swirling tunnel to engulf the ship, I stand there gobsmacked by the mournful sounds that the purgle makes as we start to drift in space. From the engineering station, those mournful sounds are more akin to catastrophic, as the hyperdrive hisses and sparks, then explodes. Oh no, we just got this ship and we already broke it? How could this- Oh. Oh. I might have put the hypermatter reactor igniter in backwards. I'll figure out how to fix it in this tale from the Hydean Way. We're your hosts, Becca Black. And Ben Yendel. Our starting topic this week is how do you deal with players that take something that has just spontaneously shown up in your adventure and then having to run with it. In last episode, we heard from David, who is thankfully back from moving halfway across a state or something, about his players glomming onto a character that they had just... It was supposed to be an incidental, and then moving into this much more deep and much more meaningful characterization than he had ever sort of planned on. And I've had this come up in quite a few of my games, where it's the weird sort of random thing... I've got a player where it's if you give him a sealed crate, that then becomes the center of his character's being. What is in the crate? He will go on whichever adventures you need him to go on to figure out what's in the crate. Right, yeah. Have you run into anything along those lines with your players so far? So far, I haven't had too much of a problem with them glomming onto things, which has in itself become a problem. Because instead of glomming onto things, they just sort of pass things by. So I'll drop a, a plot hook in front of them and none of them will bite. So, so I, can, I can pretty much count on my, my hand the three main times that my players have glommed onto things. And one of them isn't even my players glomming on, it's me glomming on. <laughs> Um, okay. The first time was with their pet stormtrooper, who has sort of become a tutorial NPC for them. He's the dumb sidekick to the entire group who just sort of points out the obvious when they don't pick up on it on their own. And he was originally just an NPC. He was just a, a random stormtrooper that was going to arrest them. And then the captain of the party rolled fantastically well on a negotiation check against him and made him rethink his entire life. <laughs> and so he, he took off his helmet and he had his, his whole squad go to the cantina instead of arresting them. And he lost his job because he later questioned his superiors. And I wrote a 50 page backstory for him and he showed up again and became part of the crew. But the first instance of one of my players actually latching onto something was 
the original tutorial NPC I had planned for the group was a droid that looks pretty much exactly like the Android logo. Okay. And his name is Carl. He's a C4RL compact relations <laughs> and linguistics. So he's he's basically a, a protocol droid with astromech capabilities. I made him specifically for the party to make up the difference between the skill sets. They have a certain skill set amongst them and there's an obvious gap in that skill set. So I was like, okay, I'll make this droid fill that gap so that when they end up needing to talk to people, because none of them are good at talking to people. <laughs> they haven't ever used the droid for that capability. The mechanic latched onto the droid and has adopted him as her son, is just constantly wanting to spend all of her hard-earned credits on upgrading him. <laughs> because of that, I ended up having to create a backstory for the droid and a reason for the droid to have been where she found him and figure out the significance of this droid. And also, I've had to try and figure out how to get the droid away from the party because they're using him as a crutch, basically. Mm. Because I let them get a blue die for having the droid help them with a slicing thing in the past. And so now every single mechanics check, the mechanic is like, can I get a boost because I have Carl with me? I'm like, no, you can't do that anymore. You need to stop. You need to stand on your own two feet as the magic mechanic that you are. Okay, I, I absolutely get that from a GM standpoint of the boost I just starts getting a bit on the annoying side. Especially it's like, okay, well I'm doing this and I've got this, so automatically I get the boost yeah. I, It just becomes old. And it's it's so unimaginative too, because it's like, you're not even describing to me how the, the droid is helping you. You're just taking it for granted that you have a droid that's helping you and you're not engaging with the universe at all. The thing that comes to my mind is I'm one of those GMs that really hates the, well, of course I've got this, so I get the bonus. I'm also one of those GMs who just despises that. But I'm also a GM who tries to always work with the players. So if you want that boost, my initial reaction is always no. Mm -hmm. And... With this system, I've sort of worked very hard to not be a no-but sort of GM. Right. And it's a very easy thing to get into. Anytime I'm wanting to say no with a, can I get this boost? It's always, describe to me how they're able to do this with you. Yeah. And yeah, if they're an astromech or a mechanic type droid, well, they're helping me do this. Well... How? You're having to do this with a very small item. How are they doing this? Like, tell me a bit of a story with this. Yeah. It's getting the player involved. I find this with any sort of NPC sort of companion, whether it's a astromech droid, whether it's a protocol droid, because then people figure that they're talking through the protocol droid and there's nothing going on with Whereas we see 3PO, there is a huge amount going on with translation of whatever he's doing. Yeah. Just sort of think of the Ewoks. The entire Ewok thing is what I figure translation should be in Star Wars. Yeah. Or with animal companions. They are part of the character. The first thing that you do is try and make it so that the character is still the more interesting thing. If you're having a PC-controlled companion 
do something, make sure that the PC companion is doing something, not just, oh, well, they're helping me out. Yeah. I've seen this with my own campaigns with a hermit that has picked up a... He was watching Avatar, so he thought of Momo. (laughs) And, all right, sure, it's now a flying Lothcat. Oh my gosh. Because, well, honestly, it just sounded cool, and I kind of went with it. Yeah. And I can't really think of a reason not to. And really, he hasn't used it as much, and... It's much to serve everyone's detriment because no one's thinking about it and it doesn't become part of the story. Mm -hmm. That's kind of the thing that how much is Carl part of the story? Like, is Carl just sort of a rolling bag of tools or is Carl an actual living part of the story? Well, originally Carl was just going to be a rolling, talking trash can. But because he's been so glommed onto... He sort of transformed into a missing spy droid. And I'm hoping that my players don't actually listen to this until this has been revealed. But (laughs) basically, Carl used to belong to an information broker who has ties to the fledgling rebellion. And this is too early for it to actually be the Rebel Alliance. So it's just a rebel cell that he's overseeing. All right. Carl had some information in his memory banks that was important to the information broker. And when the party found Carl, he was missing his memory core. He actually had a physical component removed. That's one of the plot hooks that they haven't followed up on, which is finding Carl's missing memory because it has sensitive information on it. And so the information broker has found them because he was looking for his droid and he's put them to work and he's sort of getting a feel for who these people who found his droid are. And he also needs to try and get his droid back from them, but they've latched onto him so tightly that they're not really working with him on that. Okay, so that's sort of the background of Carl. This is like the main example of this topic that I've encountered in my experience as a GM, which is just like making Carl part of the plot instead of just having him be in the background. The other the other thing that my players have glommed onto is one player in particular has glommed onto what the rent costs on this space station that the information broker owns and every single time she talks to an NPC, she's just like, so what's the rent situation around here like is it affordable or or what and i'm just like please stop asking about the rent (laughs) and i'm just sort of fascinated by carl like i can sort of see how you've created this character around carl but the question i'm kind of coming back to is how do the players deal with carl are you the main driver behind how carl is acting or do the players also get in on how the character of carl acts in any given scene for the most part i am the one role-playing carl but the way that we handle most npcs is sort of a roundtable brainstorming session where somebody will ask oh where's carl what's carl doing and someone will pause it oh he's probably doing this and then It'll be like a round table of yes anding. So like, oh, well, he's probably with the mechanic and he's playing chiptunes while she's working on something. And 
oh, well, yeah, and he's also wearing that magnetic bow tie that she made for him, and oh, well, yeah, and also there are some new stickers, and, and she's upgraded him so that his propeller attachment is now repulsor lifts on his feet. <sighs> that whole thing. <laughs> the reason I ask is I've imposed NPCs on a player group that they have just decided they didn't like. Mm-hmm. Well, I like them, so they were going to endure them. Right. Then I kind of got over myself in that because that is the worst thing that a GM could ever possibly do. <laughs> Creating recurring characters that the players have to interact with, that's one thing. That helps provide a sense of continuity. Right. Having essentially a GM PC that they find odious that you aren't willing to have die, that's another thing. Yeah. I'm guilty of that. I did it in Saga, and it's a lot easier to kill characters in Saga. <laughs> that one I now look upon, rightly die. I've had this happen in a few things. I've told you about the Rancorn in one of my campaigns, right? Right, yeah. That's actually a great example of this. This is a character that, honestly, I was expecting them to fight. Mm -hmm. This is a character that will never, ever, ever fight. Maybe. If it does fight, it's going to be one heck of a fight. Because, well, it's a Rancor. <laughs> they did everything in a way that I wasn't expecting. And because of that, because of how they approached the encounter in a way that I just didn't expect initially, it grew in such a different fashion. One of the times where the players aren't taking the quick, I'm going to raise my lightsaber and strike it down. Mm -hmm. Or I'm going to menace this character and coerce them into doing what I want them to do. Right. Kind of like what you were talking about with that stormtrooper of getting them to rethink their life through negotiating or charming. That actually is a great example of it. The way you're talking about it goes so much into what I consider the core of semi-improvisational world building. Like, I'm one of these people who absolutely adores creating just sort of weird little background stories for everything. Mm -hmm. I will come up with a history for everything. And for me, that is interesting. I don't expect the players to care one whit about it, though. Right. I know it. I haven't communicated it to my players. They have no idea. It's this great secret. <laughs> And it may actually be great. It may be the most boring thing on the planet. To me, it's interesting. What I've started to do, unless it's with Heroes, which has its own reasons for me creating NPCs, with my own campaigns, the characters that they are going to be interacting with are the only ones that I start giving any sort of depth to. And it's only the ones that they start asking about and becoming interested in that I start giving some background thought to. So it's only the stuff that the players are interested in that aren't directly plot-related mm -hmm. that I start caring about as a GM and start planning on. Right. You've played through all the Mass Effects, right? I haven't played Andromeda, but I played 1, 2, and 3. There's a character. It's a side-side character. If I remember right, he shows up in Urstaz N7 armor. Yeah, it's a knockoff N7 armor on the Citadel in one. And he's a guy who's trying to be all this gung-ho, I'm going to go fight the Geth. And one of the things he can do is talk him down. Right, yeah, I think I remember this guy. It doesn't even seem like he's fully formed enough to become a secondary character. He's just one of these weird little plot threads that are dangling. Right. But this being Bioware and the Mass Effect trilogy... In two, he's being a bartender on wherever you find Liara. 
he's a bartender there, and you can interact with him again, and his story has moved on. I would lay bets, unless there had been players actually interacting with this guy in Mass Effect 1, you would never have shown up again in Mass Effect 2. Right. It's more easily seen if you go to the ancient stuff of Baldur's Gate 1 and Baldur's Gate 2, just because then it's obvious the stuff they actually meant to have as a continuing thread. Mm -hmm. It's the little things that the players start interacting with, the things that they actually start caring about. Like a plot thread that might be interesting for your player that is routinely asking about the rent, you could have people start complaining about people shaking him down for how their rent went up with a new collection agency. Mm-hmm. With what the players are interested in, those are sort of the hooks that they are presenting to you. Sometimes you can take those and they will self-set those hooks so deep that you can drag them through almost anything. Right. If you wanted to take them into this really weird business scamming underworld extortion set of the world, you probably could. You could probably get them pretty deep into it without them really realizing it. Just by going on what the rent is in different places and having people react to, you know, the rent is actually pretty high here. Or this new person took over and all of a sudden the rent went through the floor. Mm-hmm. Changes to the norm. Sometimes players offer you hook. I guess that's sort of where the characters glomming onto another NPC is what I was kind of thinking of. Sure, every NPC that you offer is technically a plot hook or the continuation of the plot hook. But every now and then they sort of bite on those a little too hard or harder than you ever expected. So that kind of leads me to asking, like, what do you do when it's the opposite, when they won't bite onto anything? Because that's a problem that I seem to be having more often with this particular group than I have with any other group, because I'm in several other game groups simultaneously. And this is the only group that I'm in that routinely, like, denies the call of adventure and not in a hero's journey kind of way where it eventually (laughs) comes back and they are forced to pick up the call. Because it's the kind of thing where, as GM, I've tried to tailor adventures to my players, particularly because I am a new GM. I didn't want this Mm -hmm. to be a bad game or something that wasn't fun or something that was just completely off the mark. So I asked everybody, you know, like, what do you want to do? What do you want your character to experience? For the most part, I got no answers. I asked my players what their character's goals are, and one of them said, oh, well, other than this romantic subplot, I don't have any goals. Or one of them said, well... My character doesn't really have motivation, so I'm going to have to think about that. And and so we run into these big stopping blocks where they aren't giving me anything to work with. And so I try and come up with things on my own, and then they don't bite. They had to deliver some poisoned cakes to a shipping depot to swap with a, a shipment of not poisoned cakes and they were allowed they were going to be allowed to keep the edible cakes as part of their payment okay and they were excited about that but then they got to the shipping depot and found that it had been ransacked by pirates 
And instead of investigating the warehouse, instead of seeing a dead body and going towards it and, like, figuring out what happened, they decided to leave because it was too dangerous. And so, like, in hindsight, I can recognize that, you know, as GM, I should have stepped in and been like, okay, well, now the townspeople think that you ransacked the shipping depot, and so the only way that you can get out of this is to clear your name by finding what actually happened. But in the moment, several months ago, when I had even less experience as a GM, I just didn't think of it, and I was just panicking. (laughs) At one point, I will tell you about my first GMing scene and how badly that went. But there's so much context that needs to be built up. For what you're asking, though, and for the solution that you've given, that's actually a pretty good solution. That's actually a really good solution. The direct consequences of them, if you want to go completely old school, like that's sort of the Maltese Falcon in a way. You start taking a look at the wrongfully accused. Right. Okay, well now you have to clear your name, otherwise you can't do anything. This being Star Wars, the first thing that can happen is your ship getting locked down, so now you no longer have the easy means of escape. Right. You're right. Do exactly what you now know to do. But in the middle of a session, that's really hard to come up with, especially as you're new. Personally, my initial thing was have a patrol of pirates come around after. Like, they're working cleanup crew. Having a simple minging group of pirates or whatever you're wanting. Just being there to essentially scare them further towards. Right. Because I can see, yeah, a body laying on the ground. Last thing you want to do is touch it because, well, then your DNA's on it. And then the stormtroopers are coming after you. And then everyone thinks that you've done this. I've dealt with players like that. (laughs) Sometimes you do need to have the boulder rolling after them to shove them so that they're running out into the line of people with blowguns. Right, right. Sometimes you do need to do that. Sometimes you've got to be the rocks fall, and if you don't dodge, everyone dies. You can only use that so often. It's harsh, and you can only do that so often before it becomes boring on its own. Yeah. What you're asking also makes a huge amount of sense. How do you keep tossing things out in front of the players so that they actually bite on things? It kind of sounds like that group is just not engaging with a story. Like, some of it is they aren't quite sure what they're wanting to do. Well, sometimes, if they're not giving you ideas, you're definitely doing the right thing of trying to put ideas in front of them. Want to do this? Well, okay, at the end of this particular scene and path, well, okay, then we go on to the next thing. And after that, no, now you're getting chased by these arachnids because, well, you seem to be wanting to do something. (laughs) Yeah. Or you're getting chased by zombies. Or we can pull out the big guns and have you getting chased by clowns. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's really difficult when there's two extremes. And it's either they have no ideas, or they have ideas that conflict with their character development. For however long we've been playing, we've consistently hit this brick wall of a character not wanting to go along with the plot hook because it's too dangerous because the player is concerned for the welfare of their character rather than playing their character (laughs) the way that they've described them as increasingly reckless and so instead of a character that's increasingly reckless we end up with a character that's increasingly cautious this character also happens to be the face of the party and the captain of the ship the owner of the ship that they're all on So they end up having authority over the other players, which does not 
make for a good situation. And so we have this character sort of denying the call to adventure for the entire party, even though three out of four people would go along with it, even if their characters would complain about it. So just based on character histories and the way that things have been playing, when I ask, you know, what do you guys want to do? What adventures would be interesting for you? And they come up with, oh, well, I want to do a heist. It's like, okay, well, if I write a heist for you guys, you have to actually do the heist. You can't just say, yes, we're going to do a heist and then be like, oh, it's too dangerous halfway through and then bail. Okay, this sort of combines something like you've already said into what you're describing. And also something that is sort of a general RPG trope, the shadow crew, the exact opposite of what your current crew is. You know how in some role-playing games, your party will fight their mirror image. Yeah. All the way down to the goatee. (laughs) Their mirror mirror. Exactly. (laughs) Sort of going back to the idea of consequences. Okay, so they're doing a heist. They're doing the prep for the heist, but then they bulk at actually doing it. Well, they've already done all the prep for the heist. Someone else can take advantage of this. Someone else can just sort of waltz in there and do it. They can point to all this other prep that has been done that doesn't have the successful group's fingerprints on it. They decide to do the heist, or at least that's what the stormtroopers are thinking. Mm-hmm. If you're willing to do this, you can, but if you decide to bulk, there's going to be consequences. Right. Which is going to be everyone thinking they still did it. I know that this sounds like a bit of a mean way of approaching it, If the only hold that the one character has on the rest of the players is them being able to travel to different places, no matter how small the place is, there's room for adventures there. Even if you're in a small little one-street town, take your Wild West tropes and go with that. There's always some form of adventure where they don't really have to travel far to deal with it. So if the one player is sort of squelching the big ideas because they kind of have a hold, provide an out where it then equalizes them. It sounds like this player is scared of what could happen. And sometimes they do need the boot to the butt to get over it. Yeah. The first time a character gets main, it's scary. The second time, when it happens to be in the same combat, it's funny. Or scary, but... Most of the time, my players have been laughing. <laughs> because, really, who the heck gets that again? Yeah. That's the bizarre thing to me about specifically my players being scared. Like, I've got two two scaredy cats on my crew. And one of them is a newbie player, so her fear is mostly embarrassment related. And she's getting a lot better about it because we're, you know, showing her the ropes. We're, we're getting her more comfortable with role-playing. And, and so she's actually improving. The other one is a veteran player. She just seems terrified of what I'm going to do to her or do to her character, even though I have done nothing to them so far. Like, none of them have been even close to dying. The one other thing, it is one of those big things. Yes, you can do a lot of the stuff that I've been talking about. But the first thing that I know like half of our listeners are saying, take the player aside and talk to them. If it's just online, send them an email asking, so what's up? Why are you bulking so much at the quests that are put in front of you? Yeah. It is a line of communication thing. As you say things, as they say things, as you both try and figure out where the other is coming from, it breaks down some of those barriers. 
and it's the discussion that is going to grow it. You can sort of be the black box, I'm going to keep on pushing you until you do what I want, or you can try and deal with it out of game. At this point, it's kind of sounding like it's an out of game. The player, this is a bit harsh to say, but it does sound like there's a breakdown in trust between them and you, that the way that you're acting is bringing back some bad memories that they have of another GM that they're unsure that they're going to be able to complete the objective in the way that they're thinking. Like, I've run into this. I've I've definitely run into this. I've caused this a few times, where the GM has this great idea, and the hints that they're giving me is just something that I've had once, where a GM is giving these ideas of, okay, we're taking you to see Mr. Big. They've got these four enforcers that are guarding me, taking me to the crime boss, and I'm supposed to be the one who's there negotiating or talking to the big boss. Well, I'm the sneaky mechanic. Why would I be the one going up to talk to the big boss? Right. So I, thinking for my character and also thinking of what my character can do in that situation, I can't negotiate with anything. I can't really do anything useful with this sort of situation, so I completely messed up the GM's plans by then essentially stealthing away. I used a shadow technique to disappear, and the four of them went looking for me for, like, hours, because I disappeared and then ran away. Right. So completely squelched the entire idea of what the GM had been wanting to do, because he and I were completely on different levels. Right, you're on different wavelengths. Exactly. If he and I had talked about it afterwards, saying, well, what happened? Why did you do this? Or if I had gone to him saying, I- I'm sorry, I just kind of freaked there. I had, My character just sort of had nothing that he felt that, felt that he could do there. And we talked about it. The two of us could have had a much better relationship out of it. Now, could have, would have, should have. Yeah. But neither of us did that. Neither of us asked what was up. And that campaign really did echo what you're talking about. Going into a plan, getting close to it, and then bulking at it. That was sort of the whole thing, is the line of communication needs to be there. Right. If the players aren't engaging, it's time to talk to them again. Yeah. Like, outside of the scenarios. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> if any listeners out there become GMs for any length of time, you can definitely put mediation on your <laughs> resume. Oh, uh, yep. Y- you can put GM skills on a resume, no problem. You just have to, like, word it specifically to sound more professional. But, <laughs> like, I'm managing a community of collaborative storytellers. <laughs> In so many ways, it is a small-scale project management. Yeah. You are needing to get these however many people to be on the project that you're wanting them to be. And if they say, well, we've got no ideas, in some ways, that's sort of the first place where everything went sideways on you. Yeah. Because if no one's got ideas, then no one's really got buy-in. You've got a romance plot, but then what comes from that? Yeah, exactly. And, like, I don't want to have the entire plot hinge on one character's personal quest because then it becomes that person's game and it's not engaging for everybody else. So it's like, there is one overarching plot, but nobody's buying into it. <laughs> no, and that that becomes a huge issue. 
it's at that point where I've come to the idea of doing uh, story pitches to people. Essentially doing the elevator pitch on what you figure the main plot is going to be. Right. Okay, this time we are going to be pirates working out of this hidden base around some core systems, and we're going to have to deal with this sector ranger that is trying to hunt us down. Alright, that's one idea. Another one is we're gamblers, and we're getting crosswise of this hut, who's going to try and get us to steal a bunch of money from this other casino. Trying to think of something Ocean's Eleven-y. Or just go flat out with the references. Okay, I'm thinking of doing something Wing Commander, because <laughs> everyone has seen that horrible slash actually not horrible movie. I actually haven't seen it. Yeah, it is weird. <laughs> it is such a weird product of its time. It looks a lot better than it should. It has weird 90s hats, and it came out six months-ish before The Phantom Menace. Oh my gosh. On the other hand, the acting in it is surprisingly okay. Just the script and directing was horrible. <laughs> I'm wanting to do a weird sort of desperate starfighter thing. So that's Wing Commander's my shorthand for that. Mm -hmm. Because it's more desperate than any other starfighter thing I can think of. It's like a Battle of Midway style. But even more desperate than that because it's one carrier versus a flotilla. Right. Or you've got, like, I'm wanting to do an Ocean's Eleven thing. Or I'm wanting to do a Jason Bourne type thing. Or I'm wanting to do a Leverage type thing. And you've got these sort of mental shorthands of, okay, well, what are we wanting to do? Is Are we wanting to do a corporate heist, like Leverage slash Ocean's Eleven? At least get the shape of the idea from the players. Another way of doing it is present it to the players as a problem. Say to them, okay, I'm wanting to run a heist-type leverage thing. Get them to come up with a few plot ideas. Yeah. If things are completely toasted, one of the things is the begging for XP uh, setting creation sheets. Which they're pretty good. You come up with descriptions, locations, organizations, all these different things. It's this creative thing of just out-and-out world-building. The thing about it is, is that it's player-based world-building, so they have a bit of a buy-in to it. Right. I guess that's kind of all where I've been coming from. For the players to be interested, they have to feel like they can be involved with the adventure, and also they have to have some form of buy-in. Whether it's as a player party and they've got these interactions, or whether it's the world and they've created this cantina that you've then fleshed out, and, like, everything that they do is based around this little hole-in-the-wall bar that is down below street grade that one of the characters is living a couple flights up on. <laughs> you're pitching stuff. Essentially, you're throwing as much spaghetti at the wall as you can to see what sticks. Yeah. Once you finally get that one thing that sticks, you can build from there. I probably should have done a lot more of that before my campaign started because, honestly... Just saying, hey, make characters and then throw them into this this plot that you guys don't know anything about was, on my part, one of the worst story collaborative ideas that I've had. Although, just talking about this stuff now, I have a good idea for a new campaign. <laughs> okay, I was talking about that campaign where I was I was playing that sneaky guy that but shortly after that, the GM could tell that the group wasn't gelling, so he spiked it and tried coming up with a new idea. And sometimes you gotta kill your darlings. B 
be willing to, at some point, you've got to be able to be willing to say, this isn't working. Yeah. I like you guys as players. I know that we can make something that does work, but what we're doing now doesn't. Yeah, there's a, there's a certain point where you have to hit the hard reset. When you're doing that, hopefully you've learned something. It absolutely sounds like you've learned a lot of things. I, I definitely have learned a lot about being a GM and about storytelling in general just by running this game. And there's a lot in hindsight that I would change if I could. I, I definitely think that all of the mistakes that I've made that I can recognize as mistakes are valuable learning opportunities. It's particularly hard for me because sometimes I can be socially inept and kind of blunt and abrasive. And so dealing with social mediation is particularly hard for me <laughs> because I just want to, you know, like swear and tell people things really bluntly, which doesn't really work for certain delicate flowers in my friend group. I will absolutely admit that there was one time that I used one player against another because the other one, they come in late and they were trying to completely change the direction of the campaign. Mm -hmm. The rest of the player group was still on this campaign or were willing to work towards what the campaign goal was. And right. I didn't step in when I probably should have. I still feel bad about that because I really should have stepped in and mediated better. Yeah, mediation is hard. It really is. Because it's, it's a lot of um, confrontation-based interaction. It is and it isn't. So much of it is is asking what's wrong and being willing to accept what the answer is. And being able to ask, okay, so what can we do about this? The huge, biggest, biggest trick is not getting angry at them for what they say. At least I find. Like, not taking it as a slight against you, just as a slight against the situation. I personally, like, my knee-jerk reaction to things isn't to take something personally. I, I try and view things as objectively as possible, which is why I tend to be more blunt and brutally <laughs> honest, even when I probably shouldn't be. Certain friends in my friend group are the type to leap first to taking things personally. So I've had to adjust my bluntness to include disclaimers of this is not a personal thing. This is not about you. This is something that I've noticed about the way that things are happening. And this is just what needs to be addressed. And so there's a lot of having to reassure people that you don't hate them, that they're not messing everything up, that they're not screw ups or whatever. In, in the end, figuring out everyone there is supposed to be having fun. If no one's engaging in things, they're probably not having a huge amount of fun. If the load of getting people to engage falls only on one person, then that person's probably not having fun either. So if the GM's not having fun and the players aren't having fun, then something needs to change. But my idea for a new campaign is you have a set group of characters and each arc of the campaign is a different genre. And so basically the characters change every single arc to adapt to that genre. It'd be sort of like community. Okay, yeah, I kind of get what the you're... the show where you have so many different genres all in one show like you have an animated one, you have a zombie apocalypse one, you have a western one. 
You have all these different genres all in one show. And Community is actually a really good show for people to watch for character building and, and GMing inspiration, simply as far as interpersonal stuff goes. Especially for interpersonal stuff, it's really good. The thing that I've liked about Community is whichever situation that they're in, the characters are still those characters. They're still identifiable as those. It's, I'm taking these characters and I'm putting them in the zombie apocalypse. How are they going to react? Yeah. This one's always going to go off and do this. This one's always going to off and do that. This one's always going to try and take the more caring version. This one's always going to be taking the very seemingly objective point of view, but really they're a softie at heart. Yeah. And always trying to do that sort of thing. Yeah. I think that would be a really good character exercise campaign, basically, where you you have these characters and then you drop them into these random scenarios and have to see how they'll react like that's one of the things that i really loved about community was because for example the zombie apocalypse one versus like the western one in the zombie apocalypse one you had all those like alien references and you also or i guess that was a halloween one but you had like you have all these references to movies and you have these characters embodying different aspects of these movie references but they all still stay themselves like you've got troy and abed in their alien scenario you've got jeff in his diehard scenario you've got annie in the typical dawn of the dead style drama scenario and then like in the wild west one you've got one dark writer that they're all pitting against you've got people who are becoming bizarrely just dancers on tables in the cafeteria you've got you know the gunslingers you've got the card players you've got all these different elements from the wild west genre that are all just being thrown at these college students that one does sound kind of cool like it sounds like it would be very much a great character study and trying to sort of keep these characters interesting yeah it's a good exercise to like keep their motivation consistent I just had the idea of a weird framework for it is a clone squad. Yeah. Like this, these being all holographic situations that they're getting dumped into. Yeah, like a, like a gamer situation. Pretty much. God, that movie was a travesty. Yep. I have been talking far too much this episode, or at least that's what it feels like. Well, I think I think that it's it's fitting because like me being the new one asking questions and then you answering the questions because there are certain things that. I wouldn't be able to talk about on this. Well, since we are at about that time, my final thought towards this is I have learned through long and painful and many dead campaigns and far more dead PCs is the players have to have buy-in to whatever campaign you're doing. If you ever ask me about the sleeping Rancor and my relationship with that modular encounter, there is something that you can point out in my initial description, to point out why my first encounter with it went so horribly wrong. This piece of player wasn't really caring about what was going on at the table. That player and I have decided to part ways. And there's good reason for that. Because what I was giving and what they were doing isn't the same thing. What we're wanting is not the same thing. And we decided to be adults about it, figure this out, and parted ways, at least for role-playing. We moved past the not talking about it, why someone was just bored at the table and not caring. The truly biggest thing is if someone isn't buying into it, talk to them. Find out what would make it more interesting to them. What are they missing from it? Can you provide it? 
That's my one thing, is that for me, it's one of my bigger things that I don't like doing. But I have grown to figure that, yes, you have to talk to your players, especially, especially when it's not going well for you. Um, talk to your players is going to be mine, so I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. In order to not reiterate, talk to your players, which is paramount. It is the most important thing. Like, that is... The number one most important thing that I've learned as a GM is you have to talk to your players. And like, it's not even just as a GM, it's in life. Communication is the most important thing in any relationship, whether it's a friendship or family or, you know, romantic relationship or whatever. Communication is key. One of the important things as to to learn as a new GM or an inexperienced GM is that you're going to make mistakes. And you need to not only accept that you're going to make mistakes, but be prepared to make those mistakes and be prepared to learn from them. Because if you let the fear of making mistakes stop you from GMing, or if you let that fear affect the way that you GM, you're probably just going to make more mistakes and it's going to be harder to learn from. So it's important to look out for the possible mistakes you can make recognize the mistakes when you make them, and then work to learn from them and adjust the way that you proceed. When when my players bailed on that one job with the pirates, I should have, as a GM, stepped in and made it their prerogative to finish the job to clear their own name. Like, that's that's a thing that you can think of in hindsight. I think in French it's called l'esprit d'escalier. Um, the spirit of the stairwell or something like that. It's it's something that you think about later that you should have thought about in the moment. It's really frustrating, but it does get better with time. And as you get experience, you will be able to recognize those moments and learn to be able to deal with them in the moment. But especially when you're new, you're going to make mistakes and you just have to accept that and be ready to own up to that. The engine room has more wires strung across it than conspiracy theorist workroom as I slide the backup igniter into the receptacle. Gently. Alright, backup. This should work. Just be gentle with those controls up there. Thanks, Ben. I'll do my best. Did I mention that I'm not a mechanic? Because I'm not a mechanic. I'm a learner at best. I'm sure we'll learn even more on the next tale from the Hydean Way. You can find show updates on Twitter at the Hydean Way, and I'm at Shadowblinder without an E. And I'm at Deuterium Ice. We are all at TheHydeanWay.com, where you can find previous episodes, links to things we talk about on the show, and our live play podcast, Heroes of the Hydean Way. Our podcast is on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, where you can find more episodes and help us out by reading and reviewing us. Drop us a holocom at Tales at TheHydeanWay.com. We're also on Facebook as Tales from the Hydean Way. If you like what we do and want to support the show, you can find us at patreon.com slash the Heidi and Way.